This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer that your song would be heard everywhere on earth. Lord, we pray. We pray for the nations. We pray for every tribe and every tongue, every city, every village, every hamlet, that Lord, from the mega cities to the little towns, that from every tribe and tongue, that your song would be heard, that joyous praises to our King would reign out Lord, we pray that you would use us as a part of that as we take the gospel to the nations, as we just heard testimony earlier about taking the gospel to our community, taking the gospel to people in our lives that you have put there every day, friends and family that need to hear the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would use this time as a time of equipping to prepare us for that task. Lord, speak now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're new, uh, we have been in a series from the, the Gospel of Luke, and we have come today to the events of, of Passion Week. Between now and Easter Sunday, the events are going to take place during that, that last week in Jerusalem, leading up to the cross and the resurrection. And of course, that, that week begins with our Lord's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And we see that in Luke chapter 19 um, and beginning with verse 28. And so I'll ask you to, to follow along in your copy of God's Word as we look at that text together. We see here the triumphal entry of our Lord. And we're going to talk about the the significance of that this morning. Luke 19, and beginning with verse 28. The Bible says, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of disciples began to praise him joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher. Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, 
saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Mariano Rivera is one of the, the greatest pitchers in the history of the major leagues. When he pitched his final game at Yankee Stadium on September 25th, 2013, two of his longtime friends and teammates, Derek Jeter and, and Andy Pettit, came out to take the ball from his hand for the last time, and as they, wa- as they approached the, the pitcher's mound, and Derek Jeter smiled and said it's, it's, to his friend, it's time to go, <laughs> Mariano Rivera kind of surrendered the ball to him, but, but then he just put his face on Andy Pettit's shoulder and sobbed. And it was just a moment where you had 50,000 people who were cheering, and one man in the middle of it all sobbing. It's kind of a picture of what we see here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem because you've got this huge crowd of people that are cheering their lungs out but then you've got one man in the middle of it all crying his eyes out and we 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 think of this day as the the triumphal entry but it was really a tearful entry as well and we'll talk about why as we go along So what do we see here in this text about our king? First of all, we see the authority of the king. If you're taking notes, all of the the blanks will be in in your sermon notes uh, on your your bulletin if you want to follow along in that way. The authority of the king. Let's check out verse 28. The Bible says when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now when Luke says that that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he doesn't mean it the way that we talk about it in our culture today when we say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go out and, you know, run up to the store. <laughs> when he talks about going up to Jerusalem, he's talking about literally going up because they've been in Jericho, which is the lowest city on earth, 846 feet below sea level. And they're getting ready to go up to Jerusalem, only 20 miles away, but 3,300 feet above sea level. So it's a steep climb. Now imagine the emotions of Jesus as he makes this climb. On one hand, he's doing the thing that he has been determined to do, all along in, um, in, we need to advance this slide, I'm sorry. Uh, in Luke 9, 51, uh, the Bible says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. So on the one hand, Jesus has been determined that this was where he was going, but yet he also knows what awaits him there. In Mark chapter 10, 
in verses 33 and 34. It says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. And so unlike the times that Jesus has made this journey to Jerusalem as a child, when he went up with Mary and Joseph as a pilgrim himself, when his heart was just filled with unvarnished joy to be going to Jerusalem, there's, a, there's on this day a, a heaviness as he makes the steep climb up to Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 29 and, and following. It says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So as Jesus nears Jerusalem, he comes to this little town of Bethany, which is a special place to him. It's where he would stay whenever he was doing ministry in Jerusalem because it's where some of his closest friends live. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this, this brother and two sisters, the, these, these siblings. And they had, they had become like siblings to, to Jesus. And their home was a place of, of welcome and acceptance and love. And he's been there many times. But as he approaches Bethany on this day, he does something that he's never done before. He sends these two disciples to go and to procure this, this donkey. And it, it, it says in, in verse 30 that, that Jesus told them, you'll find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. It's, it's almost as if this, this has been prearranged. It's been prearranged from before the foundation of the world. In fact, over 500 years before, Zechariah had said in his, his prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. God's words, the prophecies of God's word, are going to be fulfilled. You know, we live in a world where words are just so transient. You know, ephemeral tweets <laughs> that, you know, appear for a moment and, and sometimes which are said with, with such a sense of, of, of solemnity and self-importance and they just, you know, they're just gone like dust in the wind. We live in a world where, where people are prone to make, you know, uh, solemn predictions about and prognostications of, of, of what is going to come, whether it's sports or politics or whatever. And they just, what happens to those words? They just vanish like, like the fog in the morning sun. Just, they're just gone. God's words are, are not like that. The Bible says in, in Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God's word, God's prophecies, they're all going to be fulfilled. You can trust the Bible that you hold in your hands. 
its words don't fade. They will all be fulfilled. What's the significance of the donkey? Well, why does Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey? What's, what's up with that? A couple of things. First of all, it shows his Davidic heritage. It shows his Davidic heritage. So from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke has been intent to show that Jesus is the Davidic king, that he is the Messiah who would come from the house of David. And so going back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he's been intent to show this. He he was intent to show at the very beginning that, that Joseph came from the line of David and that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And even when the angel visits Mary and tells her that she is going to give birth to Jesus, what does the angel say to Mary? He says that your son will reign from the throne of his father David. But what's the link between David and the donkey? Well, during the time of David, the donkey was an animal of royalty. 2 Samuel 16.2 says that during the reign of King David that it was the donkey was the animal that he rode and that was associated with the royalty of his house. In 1 Kings 1.33 we see that David's son Solomon rode a donkey on the day that he was crowned as king. Later on, the kings went to uh, war horses. But during the time of King David, they rode this, this humble animal of peace. And that, that's the second thing that we see uh, about the significance of the donkey is that it shows his divine humility. The divine humility of, of Jesus. Zechariah 9 9 says that the king will come humble and riding on a donkey. You see, Jesus doesn't need the, 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 the pompous, uh, power flaunting pretension of, of an earthly ruler. He possesses the power. He doesn't need to pretend that he has it or to flaunt it. He has it. He is strong enough to be gentle. He is powerful enough to be humble. And he calls us to that same mindset as his followers. In Philippians 2 and and verses 5 through 8, we're told to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're called to the humility of our Lord. Verses 32 through 34. The Bible says, So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. So so notice here that every detail is just as Jesus says it's going to be. It says they found the donkey, you know, just as he had told them. Every detail 
is falling into place. And Jesus is in control of all of this. This is very important to understand because during the events of Passion Week, there, there are points where it's going to look like that, that evil people are in control. Jesus is going to be arrested and bound and nailed to a cross. And it is going to look like on the outside that it's evil people that are pulling the strings and that are in control. But oh no, God is pulling the strings. Jesus is in control of everything, every detail that is happening. It's, it's all according to the plan of God and all of it demonstrates the authority of God. There's a landmark book in the field of New Testament studies by Albert Schweitzer called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And Schweitzer in the, the book sort of made the point, he said, well, you know, Jesus had all these great plans and designs, but in the end he was crushed by the wheel of history. Oh, what we see here is that Jesus is the one who's turning the wheel. He's in total control of everything that is taking place. Now listen, this is, great, this is a great encouragement to our lives because there are times in our lives when it seems like we're, things are just not in control. There are times in our lives when we just can't understand what is going on. We can't make sense of it. But we have the promise of God's word that our sovereign God who loves us is in control, that he's working for his glory, he's working for our good, and as Romans 8.28 says, that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The authority of the king. Second, we see the entry of the king. The entry of the king. Verses 35 and 36. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now, what's the significance of this? Why are these disciples spreading their outer cloaks on the pathway for this donkey that's bearing Jesus to, to trot upon? A couple of things. First of all, it's a sign of reverence, and specifically a sign of reverence for royalty. Um, in 2 Kings 9.13, when Jehu became king, the Bible tells us there that they actually put their outer garments on the steps for Jehu to step upon. And as he was doing that, they sounded the trumpet and they cried out, Jehu is king. And so it was a sign of, of honor, uh, a red carpet treatment for royalty. That was part of it but also it was a sign of willingness to give all. In, the, in taking off their outer garments and placing them on the donkey or putting them as a, as a path for Jesus to ride upon, they're, they're saying, that, you know, this, this, this is, uh, I'm taking this and I'm spreading this out before you, but, but the sign of giving that was a sign that, Lord, you are king, and we are willing to give all to you, just like it should be when we give, when we give tithes and offerings. I mean, what should the worshipful spirit in our hearts as we do that is that, Lord, everything I have belongs to you, and I belong to you, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm giving this as a sign of my willingness to give all to you. Verses 37 and, and 38. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. This is the second mention of the Mount of Olives in this text, a place that is loaded with prophetic significance. And so Luke is going to tell us in Acts 1 that after the resurrection, Jesus ascends back into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 tells us that when he descends from heaven at his second coming, that his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And now as Jesus rides the donkey down the slope of the Mount of Olives, the crowd is swelling and the crowd begins singing. And they are singing the words of Psalm 118.26, but with a twist. Typically, pilgrims going to Jerusalem to worship would sing these words to one another. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was like a, a joyful greeting to one another. But now, one word changes. Now it's not blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which they would sing to one another. Now they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the significance of this is not lost on the Pharisees, on the religious leaders who opposed Jesus. How do they react to this? Verses 39 and 40 some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They knew what this meant. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Wow. Just the irony of that statement. The great Lucan scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary, Daryl Bach, his commentary on Luke says this about the, the words of, of Jesus in verse 40, Bach says, creation is aware of Jesus, but the leadership of the nation is not. That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. The stony hearts of the Pharisees refuse to praise Jesus. But listen, the Bible says that Jesus is building a church where the living stones of his people will praise him. The entry of the king. Finally, the tears of the king. The tears of the king. Let's look at verses 41 and 42. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The word wept here in Greek means full sobbing. Jesus is sobbing. Why? Because he knows how the events of this week are going to play out. 
He knows that even though there's cheering now, ultimately there's going to be rejection, and he knows what that means. He knows that they are rejecting the peace that he brings and that they are going to choose the way of rebellion and war against Rome, and he knows what that means. He knows that just a few decades later that the Romans will utterly destroy the city and the people within it. It's interesting here, Jesus Jesus refers to peace here in verse 42. If you knew this day, what would bring peace? You know, earlier we, we looked at Zechariah 9.9 where it says that Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on, on a donkey, but we often don't put that together with verse 10, with Zechariah 9.10. Let's put the whole thing together. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. But then verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and from the house, and the horse from Jerusalem. So the chariot, the war horse, okay, these these are instruments of war. The bow, the war bow, the bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And so the picture here in verse 10 is the the day when, when the Prince of Peace comes again to rule and reign. And his reign will will extend all across to renewed creation as the waters cover the sea. His peace will reign. And so, in a way, what's happening here in the triumphal entry is a foretaste of that future praise when the king of kings does come again and he rules and reigns as the prince of of, of peace and it's, it's interesting when we think about when we think about a foretaste of the future. The other gospels mention that these people are waving branches, and John specifically mentions that they are what palm palm branches. But then when you get to the book of Revelation, which John also writes, what's the picture that he paints of that ultimately, ultimate heavenly worship that we're going to take part in? Revelation 7, 9, and 10, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb and so this this palm waving praise singing crowd is a foretaste of the future when the prince of peace shall reign and his peace will be established to the ends of the earth But Jesus knows that in the near term, in the immediate future, he knows that peace is not what lies in store for Jerusalem. 
So he says in verses 43 and 44, the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. This is an accurate, detailed picture of exactly what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans utterly destroyed the city. And Jesus knows this is coming. And it is breaking his heart. Jesus weeps because he's like a, a parent, a loving mom or dad who they, they love their child. And they see their child making self-destructive choices. And it's breaking their heart. That's what's bringing forth the tears of Jesus. He loves these people and he, and he knows the, the self-destructive choice that they are about to make and, and what that ultimately is going to mean for them. Because Jesus knows that despite all the cheers that before the end of the week it's the cry of crucify him that will prevail. And he weeps not so much for what that will mean for him, but for what it will mean for them. He weeps because of what their rejection of him and the peace that he brings will, bring, will mean for them. Because Jesus is the only one who can bring you peace and wholeness and life. And to reject Jesus is the ultimately self-destructive choice. Self-destructive to an extent in this life, yes. There are painful consequences of sin. But ultimately, ultimately self-destructive, eternally self-destructive in the future. What will you do with Jesus? You notice in verse 44, Jesus says, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. There are two words for, for time in Greek, chronos and kairos. Chronos means kind of what you would think it would mean, chronological time. You know, normal, sequential, chronological time. But chronos is not the word that is used here. The word used here is kairos. Kairos means the opportune time, the critical time. Time. This is a kairos moment for Jerusalem and that Jesus knows that the choice that is made in this moment will determine what comes in the future. But listen, there are kairos moments in every single one of our lives. These are not normal moments. This is not just kind of a normal time, a time where just kind of things are going on. No, no, no. In, in every life, there are special moments, kairos moments, where the choice that is made in that moment is significant for the rest of our lives and for eternity. If you don't know 
Jesus Christ as your Savior. This is a Kairos moment because God in his grace has put you here under the hearing of the gospel. He has put you in a place right now in this moment where you can hear the good news that there is a Savior who has come and that despite all of our sin and the condemnation that we deserve, that God in his grace has provided us a way not to get what we deserve, but to get the salvation and the grace that he offers because Jesus came and he comes into Jerusalem ultimately to take the condemnation that we deserve. That's what he's going to do on the cross. And he is going to rise from the dead so that all who turn to him and trust in him can also have life, life abundant and life eternal. And so if you don't know Jesus right now, right where you're sitting, what will you do in this Kairos moment in your life? Will you turn to him? Will you receive him as your king or will you reject him? And say, I'm gonna put it off. And your heart grows harder and harder and harder. There are Kairos moments in the lives of believers. These are moments when the Spirit of God speaks to us as followers of Christ, but he's calling us. He's calling us perhaps to a a new work, a new thing. It could be in the lives of some of these students that the Spirit of God is dealing with you about a call to vocational ministry. You know, and you can kind of put that off or kind of deny that and kind of squelch that and grieve the Spirit of God or you can respond to what God is doing. There are times in our lives as believers when he calls us to, 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 to throw off sin in our lives, some, some grudge that we've been nursing against another person, some unforgiveness in our hearts that's like toxicity in our hearts. And he's calling you right now, put that down. It has no place in your life or some other sin that you've been cherishing. And he's calling you today to repent. And you can choose today to repent or you can squelch that and grieve the spirit of God. Kairos moments. There are Kairos moments in the life of a church. You know, there are churches all across our country and around the world, but especially here in our country and in Western Europe that are dying. Thousands upon thousands of them dying. But I guarantee you that if you could look back and you could see the history of every single one of those churches, there would have been kairos moments where they could have chosen to make bold steps of faith to advance the gospel. They could have made choices in those kairos moments, those opportune moments. They could have taken a step of faith and it it would have meant change and maybe some pain, and maybe an initial stepping back so that they could take massive leaps forward in the future. But they didn't do it. And they stuck their head in the sand. They were like the, 
They were like the children of Israel on the edge of the Jordan River with the promised land right on the other side. But they refused to step out. They refused to take a step of faith. And they shrunk back in fear. They wandered in the wilderness. Listen, there are churches that are wandering in the wilderness and on their way to death. Why? Because they missed their time. They missed the moment. Those significant moments and opportunities that God put in front of them and they refused to step out boldly in faith. They refused to make change for the sake of the gospel. They refused to make courageous choices. And now they're in the wilderness. They're on their way to death. There are kairos moments in the lives, the corporate lives of churches as well. What will you do with the moment, with the time that God has placed in front of you? Let's pray together. Father, in many ways, this is a a sobering text. But it's a text that that causes us to search our hearts. Father, I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus as their king. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts right now to see who Jesus is and that you would open their hearts to repent and to trust in him and to welcome him into their lives as king. Father, for believers in this room, myself included, we, we, we pray that you would help us to step out in faith, Lord. Lord, when you, when you put those opportunities in front of us, whether it's to, to do something that is going to, that's going to help advance the gospel or just any, something in our lives that we need to, to put aside so that we can move forward, something that's been weighing us down that we need to throw off. Father, give us the grace to seize those moments that you present. Lord, as a church, we pray for courage, gospel courage, Lord, that we would be a church that doesn't just say that we're about advancing the gospel, but that we're willing to make tough choices to do so. Lord, make us a church that is willing to to, to do what it takes, even, even if that means change, even if it means some initial pain, even if it means a couple of steps back so that we can take some massive leaps forward in our future. Lord, make us willing to do it. Because you are worth it as our king. And the gospel that you've given us to, to present to our community and around the world is worth it. And it's in the name of Jesus, our King, that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. 
Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.